Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So, welcome everybody. Welcome to Insight LA Long Beach in our Sunday sit. For those of you that may be new, my name is Casey. I'm an, uh, a facilitator for Inside LA. And here in the corner, we have Wendy Block, another facilitator for Inside LA, and um, also teacher here for our Long Beach branch. And then as you can see, we have a very special, amazing, Guest teacher today? Oh, yeah. Go, <laughs> ego, don't do it. Venable Tenzin Namsau. And very excited to have his voice and his presence here today. Venable uh, Namsau as an opportunity to, to live and, and teach for Soaking Rinpoche. Yeah. Soaking Rinpoche, for those of you who are not familiar, is one of the most prominent. Tibetan Buddhist teachers alive today. He's just phenomenal, absolutely amazing. And so Venable Namsel getting an opportunity to, to work with and, and study in such close quarters with Rinpoche is a, a phenomenal, uh, auspicious opportunity. And for him to, to be able to bring that wisdom over and uh, to us and, and share with us that wisdom is... Uh, is quite special for us. So thank you very much for coming out here. Okay, I'll hand it over to Vin Lamamso. And thanks so much for having me, uh, Casey and you know Wendy and others at the center. And um, it's really wonderful to see all you guys. And to me, it's always um, amazing <coughs> that um, out of all the activities people could do, they they come and you know meditate. So I really rejoice in that and sort of feel a lot of, um, what's the word? I take pleasure that people sort of engage in this and they find it useful, you know? So thank you for your effort and for coming. Um, let's see. <laughs> so we'll see what comes out today. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, so no promises. Uh, come on in. guys. <laughs> Who else is back there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we'll see what happens when I do. I need more tea too. <laughs> So in my tradition, we, we recite a few prayers before a talk. So if it's OK with you, I'm just going to recite a few things. You can completely ignore them. <laughs> Why would you do that? I don't know. I'm just giving you the, you know, the option, right? We have uh, a lot of options in our society. So I think you have to give people options, right? <laughs> Om 
Also, just take a second and um, just maybe reflect on your motivations for why you're here. I'm sure they're good ones. And then we'll just reflect together, sort of add on to our motivation for today. That just as we ourselves came here to seek some kind of whatever kind of experience, um, usually we're seeking some kind of well-being, happiness, contentment. I think you can apply this to everything in life. So, so are all other beings that we share this earth with. They're also seeking that. So just generate uh, just this aspiration that from meditating, discussing, listening to the Buddha Dharma today altogether, that it may become a cause for not, our own, not only our own well-being, contentment, and happiness, but also that of all others. So just generate that really gently in your heart, that aspiration for this morning. Okay, thank you. So, <coughs> there's a famous saying I, I, I like by a teacher, a uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, <coughs> I'm really fond of. He says, um, and you know, this is, I'm putting it out there for sort of contemplation too, it's not, uh, you don't have to agree with me, but <laughs> actually, you don't have to agree with me about anything today, <laughs> just putting that out there. So, he says, um, there's no such thing as communication, uh, really. There's just constructive miscommunication and unconstructive miscommunication. <laughs> so this is really one of my favorite quotes. Um, he's a modern Tibetan Lama, you know, a little bit. He made The Cup, you know this movie? Some sort of Kensei movie, The Cup. Anyway. Um, so just with that said, you know, we have to come to some sort of a <laughs> miscommunicate, hopefully constructive miscommunication together today. And so I kind of wish for that, I mean, aspiration for that. And then with that said, also, like, feel free. I, I really like feedback from people, so feel free to, you know, you can ask questions anytime. I'll leave time at the end, too. Where's Casey? Mm-hmm. Oh, you Ten minutes before, right? Yes, it's done. Yeah. So 11, 20. Okay. So I'll leave, try to leave some time. We might have some time for discussion just amongst you as well, I hope. Um, so today's talk um, I titled Everyday Wakefulness mainly because it's a title that you can kind of like just do anything with. <laughs> so it makes it really open, yeah? But it also has specific meaning, so sorry, I should say that. But it, it also has um, 
the possibility to go in different directions. So really, we're kind of in a dialogue here. That's how I view it very much, yeah? We're in an exchange. Um, I also, these days, I kind of, Tibetan Buddhism has a lot of terminology. Are some of you familiar with Tibetan Buddhism? Practitioners at all? Yeah? Do you? There's a lot of jargon and terminology, and, and you know, they can be heavy on the philosophy sometimes. So these days, I'm really trying to get out of jargon, so we'll see if that happens. <laughs> no promises. So um, first, what I wanted to talk a little bit about this quality, um, what I mean by every day, yeah? So often when we're meditators, yeah, and when we're engaging in Buddha Dharma or our spiritual path, um, we often want to see how to bring this sort of into our life, you know? And, and it's, I think for us, especially in this country and just as modern people, it's really important to figure out how to take ourselves from the cushion into actual practice and engagement in the world. And especially, you know, we also have a little bit of a bias in American culture that unless this is happening, mm, maybe it's not good. You see what I'm saying? So I think we should explore this in both ways. Um, they both have downsides and upsides, yeah? So um, mainly I wanted to focus on that today, sort of why why to do that and why that's important. Because I found in my practice that often if I just leave it on the cushion and sort of I get my time in, like I'm, some of you seem like, you know, you've been meditating a long time. Just get your 30 minutes in, hour in. Um, we get up, and of course there's some resonance of that that goes into our day. But again, if, if, it's, if we're not training or cultivating <coughs> aspects of the practice in our engagement with others, in... Um, uh, just our activities throughout our day, throughout our day, and the work we do. Um, often it can become not. It's it's a little like going to the gym. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. And and again, I'm I'm a little provocative, so I'm apologize if I'm. I'm just that's my manner. I'm, I grew up in like a punk rock background, so like that's what happens. So I apologize. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I'm a little direct. So you can raise your hand and say <laughs> too direct. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so often, if, if our practice is becoming a little bit like going to the... I think in the beginning, this is fine. Because we, we need some kind of reference point. We need some kind of container for our meditation practice. You see what I'm saying? So if it's a little bit like the gym, in the sense of what do we do when we go to the gym? We're trying to work our muscles, work our body, cardio, whatever you do. <laughs> um, to get some sort of immediate result from that. Obviously... Some of you have been practicing a longer uh, Theravada Buddhism or just meditation in general. You know, you you know, this is a long-term thing. You know, this takes time, and it's 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 not easy, and it can be frustrating at times. So I think a way to mitigate this frustration is to really work in how to bring this into our life. Now, now, of course, like with that said, there's many things we can bring into our life from this practice, from basic mindfulness practice to all the way up to you know, what we call meditations on shunyata and, and relative and ultimate bodhicitta, what we call the Tibetan system. We can bring all these. So some are analytical, more working with the um, training our mind and thought patterns with others in, in relation to our work or body um, expressions or speech or whatever. And of course, with mindfulness, that's something we can bring in all the time, right? no matter what we're doing. 
So with that said, um, today I want to focus a little bit on wakefulness. So that's why I have this term. Now wakefulness is a, we have this uh, term called uh, bodhicitta, yeah, in, in Sanskrit. And uh, this term bodhicitta really refers to a mind of awakening. And there's many, many like deep pockets of this, you know? So we don't have time to explore a lot of it today. And also I don't, again, I don't want to, some of you who are newer, I don't want to load you with a bunch of Buddhist jargon and stuff. <laughs> Mostly um, we have to find things that are useful to us to bring into our life where we are. And then that's going to shift, right? So part of just going back to the everyday part of this talk, part of the everyday is recognizing where we're at as a person at this point in our life and what we need. So that's, that's a huge you know, step. Often in the Tibetan tradition, this seems like more Theravada, in case you're saying, some of you are Theravada practitioners, yes? And um, so I like to complain about Tibetan Buddhists when I'm with Theravada practitioners. <laughs> <laughs> then I complain about Theravada practitioners. I don't do that. Theravada, you know, being the foundation of Buddhism, to me it's like the, I don't know, it's like the richest one, in a way. So as far as the expression of Buddhism. So then, um, anyways, so <laughs> to complain about Tibetan Buddhism, often people in Tibetan Buddhism, especially us Westerners, the way they do it, it's like a smorgasbord, you know? So like you, you come to a talk and, you know, a Tibetan Lama sometimes just gives you everything. They give you the whole entire path from what we call, you know, things similar to Theravada all the way through what we call Vajrayana, these different vehicles or yanas of practice. So they'll give, you know, you come and you show up and you get all, you know, within a few months you can get a big range of things, you know. And then it's difficult sometimes to pick out, oh, what's, what's appropriate to me? Because we don't know sometimes. So we're trusting the teacher in a way, yeah? So I think a big part of this uh, aspect of everyday wakefulness is the first step is really finding out um, or having, working with, with ourselves in a way and really taking note over a period of time where we're at and sort of taking stock. You see what I'm saying? In a very gentle, compassionate way. I don't know if, if you're like me, this has been a, that's been a process and it's quite hard to do. Um, most of, you know, I, I've been a sufferer of a, I hate this word now, I don't know why, because it's kind of a tricky word. Sorry, I shouldn't say hate, that's a strong word, but I, I have issues with this word now, but I'll, I'll say it. You know, I, I've been a, like a low self-esteem struggler my whole life, with that, which is very common, I think, amongst our society. And um, the term low self-esteem is just a little tricky, you know? But anyways, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so, um, but it's a good term. We don't have anything better right now. So, <laughs> so what I'm implying is um, often taking stock for me has been a process of recognizing and coming to my own like, inner goodness. Where, where low self-esteem often masks that. And so I'm just throwing that out there because for some of you, when you're taking stock to find, okay, what do I need in my life to work with everyday wakefulness, then sometimes we have to work through these issues of how we view ourselves and how we, we place value and worth you know, in, our, in ourselves. And um, then, then we can start taking stock with a more gentle, compassionate sort of attitude. Um, that's personally been a struggle for me. I'm sure all of you guys are on different spectrums with that. Um, so then just getting, with that said, like um, going back to what I said a few minutes ago, 
you know, Tibetan Buddhists, we get all these practices, so it can be quite confusing. You know, it can be quite like, so what do I bring into my everyday wakeful? Like, what am I being wakeful of, right, every day? I think, um, so here I'm going to focus on a certain aspect of wakefulness. So that I just, I'm pointing that out because I don't want to say wakefulness is what I'm saying. It's just I'm saying an aspect, yeah? So um, I'm defining, or at least on the plane I defined <laughs> On the plane here, I defined it as, um, and again, I'm trying to use Nam jargon, so just go with me here a little bit. I'm defining wakefulness as a union of non-judgment and altruism. Yeah? So this is, again, um, pretty big words, and, and just as I kind of described in the guided meditation, um, when we think of the word, like, altruism, it's such a big thing. And often, for me, if you're like me, immediately it's easy to go into a result-oriented mindset with this. Yeah? Is anybody like me? I mean, you're going to leave me lonely up here. Yeah? So, so what I'm doing, I want to invite you to sort of <clears throat> just drop that for now. So we're not thinking of altruism or non-judgment in a result-oriented. I think the process of non-judgment or the process... Of, of altruism is about, yeah, it's about the process. It's not about us getting to a certain result with it. So I just want to put that out there. Because, um, okay, we'll get there. So, in a way, coming from this, this term wakefulness, or like I said, uh, bodhicitta in Sanskrit, however much we're, we're actually able to abide in non-judgment, is equal to how much wakefulness we'll experience. Yeah? So this term also non-judgment, I think it 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 has a it can be amorphous sometimes. So I'm gonna we're gonna go deeper into this. And also I wanted to say um, the word union. So here when I'm explaining it, altruism and non-judgment, they're like two sides of the same coin. You see what I'm saying? Just a little bit different expression, but I'm sure you can experience when when we're having less judgment we're able to open to others. We're able to create space to open and have more behavior or states of mind that are altruistic, yeah? So, I find when I'm in a judging state of mind, it's a very fixed state. And in Buddhism, generally, what they have a problem with is any, like the Buddha almost, this is what I find incredibly inspiring about Buddha Dharma is that um, the Buddha wasn't really, I think, concerned with like, oh, this is my religion, this is like how to do it. Um, you know, later down the road, people are, make differentiations in order for someone to train in skillful means in Upaya. But, but aside from that, um, really the Buddha was describing, so what binds you, you know? And the Buddha was mostly concerned with this, what binds us? So I really like this word bind, I don't know. Lately, I like it. Um, so I think I just want to throw that out there for you to think about and, and sort of think about this term bind. And it, it goes very deep in Buddha Dharma. Because essentially what the Buddha said is what binds us is concept, going to the most deepest level of Buddhism. But of course, you and I, we need concepts too to, to talk and communicate with each other. So it's a very tricky kind of subtle thing. But um, what I was thinking about was when I'm in a state of judgment about myself, someone else, 
could be this, you know, bowl, whatever. There's some kind of fixation with that. There's some kind of bind. You see what I'm saying? And so when the and then the fixation binds us to an experience and limits the experience. So again, when, when sometimes we hear the word non-judgment, it could seem like judging about judging. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm being really careful to just not go there with you. Yeah. So so I'm so I want to emphasize this aspect of more. What's our experience when we're, when we're in this kind of judging mind? And, and I say mind because it comes from a thought, yeah? And it comes from, and then it goes out into our speech or body or whatever, and how we express ourselves. Um, so for the most part, and again, I'm just explaining my experience because I want to explain that, and then you can see if it resonates with you. But for the most part, judgment because it binds, and then there's fixation, then there's kind of a contraction. So again, now you can, you can see how I'm tying in the unification of this altruistic attitude, our ability to see the value of, of others' needs, in a way, and then also non-judgment. So when we contract, we're not able to see others' needs. We're not able to respond to them. We're not able to, um, I think even understand them to a way? I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that resonate? Yeah? So there's essentially less space to have a constructive reaction to ourselves and others. So for me as a Buddhist practitioner, this is sort of like, mm, this is like the really the, the essence of it for me. Whatever is create, creating less space in my mind, and again, we can use all kinds of terms like I was using before, more bondage, more um, fixation, more contraction. I know there's something off. <laughs> this is like a trigger. It's like, for me, that's like a canary in the coal mine. But what's very tricky is like, then what are we left with? Are we left with like, okay, so let's say we're perfect practitioners. <laughs> so what are we left with? We're left with uh, um, some like non-referential uh, jello state. You see what I'm saying? The Buddha, I mean, all of you know the life of the Buddha? Do many of you have, have some kind of reference with it, reference point? So, Buddha wasn't like that, right? No? So, you can see, as the, for the Buddha, as the, non -judge, as the judgment decreased throughout, like if you read the Jataka story, stories in the Mahayana tradition, they're all the stories of his past lives as a Bodhisattva before he attained enlightenment. So, in all those stories, you see as the judgment is decreasing, the what we call prajna, you know, or wisdom, is increasing. Yeah? And so part of that wisdom, again, the real actual wisdom is when it's, uh, uh, there's no contraction at all. But we're, we're not going to get to that today. But um, part of that wisdom is discernment, right? So... I often used to think that if I somehow drop, I'm a very judgmental person, by the way. I'm judging all of you right now, just to, like, <laughs> just, just to put it out there. So that's just my mind. That's, some people, I think, are less judgmental than others, you know? But I, I kind of judge everything. So this has been a key practice for me, you know? So I don't think any of you are probably as bad as me, but, you know, just in case, I'm just throwing it out there. So <laughs> the more, the, um, I used to think that if somehow the judgment is decreasing, then maybe like 
everything just becomes a blob and I'm not able to distinguish between things or discern between things. But personally, what I've noticed over the years of working with judgment is that discernment increases. You see what I'm saying? Like if you, if you read the stories of some great practitioners, 16 arhats or you know, different bodhisattva practitioners, you read in their life stories, you know, they may wake, uh, wake we're talking like a high-level bodhisattva who's almost an enlightened being from a religious perspective, just go with me here. So they might wait 200, 300 years to just for the opportunity to benefit one being. Like they may be following them through successive lives. This, again, this, if you don't, it's okay if you don't want to go here with me in a religious belief. I'm bringing that in a little bit. But they might follow them in successive lives, waiting for the exact moment where they're open to the, to the Dharma. And then they bring in whatever that person needs. It doesn't you know, always look like nice and pretty sometimes either. It might be exactly what that person needs to bring them into the path so they can attain enlightenment. Yeah? So that kind of discernment is extreme. I mean, that requires an incredibly, incredible amount of discernment. And of course, non-judgment. Yeah? So bringing that into daily life, I'm just watching the time here because I want to make sure there's time for questions and stuff. So bringing that into daily life, we have the practices of shamatha and vipassana, right? So mainly this is what in Buddha Dharma we practice. And there's many forms of this. In the Theravada, they have uh, four foundations of mindfulness, all these other practices, meditating on metta, meditating on permanence and death. Um, same in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we have the same things. Um, we also have uh, in the Vajrayana vehicle of Tibetan Buddhism, many methods of uh, working with shamatha and vipassana and unifying these. So when we practice shamatha, as you guys know, that's what we were doing essentially this morning, just to be clear. Shamatha is a practice of basically non-distraction. It's quite simple. I mean, these days everyone, like, like myself, we get up here and we like to make a lot of words because just to fill the time. But shamatha is actually quite simple. It's just having an object of meditation, like the breath, like we did this morning, or not having an object, which becomes the... the the clarity of the mind itself. That was closer to this just sitting practice. Or in Zen, they call it shikantaza. That's what I introduced a little bit this morning. So either one, we're cultivating non-distraction. And when we're cultivating non-distraction, we're letting the mind, or the what we call the uh, dualistic mind, or the bound mind, settle. And when that bound mind settles more and more, what do you have? Say it with me. Less judgment. Of course, right? So, so that happens over time, over years of practicing. So it's not an immediate thing. But this is one way we work with shamatha. Of course, shamatha also has, or uh, what, we, what do we call it, shine, or like um, calm abiding practice in English. This, is, this practice also has the benefit of cultivating a focused mind. And then when we have that very focused mind, we're able to move it to any object we want of meditation and gain a more deeper experience with that. So then with Vipassana, we're really working more... Now, again, I'm, this is broad, right? Because these are big topics, as some of you know. Um, I'm not able to go into detail in But just to sort of essentialize them. With Vipassana, we're really working on the insight penetrating into, okay, how are things? How is this, how is this appearing to me? How is this existing? What's my experience of this? Be it ourselves, our, our five, five aggregates of... You know, basically our body and mind, and then also phenomena 
on the outside. So when, in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, we, uh, nangwa means phenomena, and it's a kind of a beautiful term because it includes everything. So phenomena means everything that appears, what we see, what we don't see, all that. But of course, it's more related to what we see. Uh, not with our eyes, but it also re it refers to thoughts, it refers to all appearances of the senses, etc., right? Even sensations, I think, can be nangwa. So when we're working with Vipassana, we're, we're working with the insight penetrating into, well, wh how is this? What is this? <coughs> and then essentially what we're working with is cultivating a kind of non-judgment with the situation. That's why I'm using the word non-judgment here. So the non-judgment is more related to the Vipassana aspect. But even with calm abiding practice, just sitting with our breath like we were doing this morning or without an object and we're, we're cultivating non-distraction, as the, the thoughts settle, like I use this analogy of when we shake, you know, like muddy water gets shaken in a lake or, or in a glass of water, but if you leave it for enough time, it'll settle down, yeah? And then what do we start to see? We start to see how things actually are. So this is the, the difference in Buddha Dharma of we're not trying to cultivate some, some aspect or religious behavior or something else in order to um, build something up that is like, you know, like, oh, I hate the way, you know, downtown Long Beach works. Let's just tear it all down and build something else, you know? <laughs> we're actually instead trying to penetrate into, how is that? The buildings don't have to go anywhere. They can still be what they are. But we're really trying to um, go to, like, um, one talk by a Theravada monk I really respect is Bhikkhu uh, Bodhi, I can't remember. I know it's a different monk. But anyways, he said ground zero. You know, yeah. he called shunyata as like ground zero. It's a very nice term to, to explain it. So it's a like ground zero. But zero not meaning nothing, just meaning all possibilities are open. Yeah? So, um, what was I getting to here? Oh, so when, with shamatha, when we let the the, the glass settle, and we let the, the luminous, clear, or limpid nature of the mind come, then we have an opportunity more to unify it with Vipassana. Because even, because the mind itself, when it's clear, is, uh, now go with, I know this is, a, for some of you, this is a bit abstract, so just go with me here, maybe. <laughs> so, as we look into that clarity, there's a possibility to also see um, space. Yeah? And this is more related to the Vipassana aspect. And this is how we unify them. So again, more practical, bringing it back down to earth, working with non-judgment, and working with altruism. I personally think um, the, it's, it's, much more, it's much healthier for us as a culture. So again, this is my bullshit opinion, but I'm just going to give it. That's usually what I do. <laughs> Nobody asks, and I just give it. Um, is I think for our particular uh, culture and, and what how we've grown up and what we you know how our societies are in America, it's really good for altru to to come first to the non-judgment, and and work really with cultivating that, in whatever way we can. Some very practical ways are um, just questioning. Oh, is it really like that? Like I do this all day long, you know. So it's like, oh, somebody just flipped me off on you know the ten. Mm -hmm. I'm angry now, like that person's an a-hole, you know? But is it really like that? So I just question, you know? Is that how it is? And so, and then I don't need an answer, 
you know? I'm not also trying to push myself into a box of saying like, oh, it's definitely not like that. You should be a good Buddhist. You should love the guy. Forgive him, you know, like, or like, or I don't forgive him and I continue to get angry or maybe I flip him off back and then I, uh, and then I judge myself for it and I'm a bad Buddhist and then I go to sit on the cushion and I'm just like, I'm terrible, you know? <laughs> but I'm sure none of you experience that. Right? <laughs> so, so, Anyways, so my point is I think culturally it's very healthy for us to first work with this non-judgment in these very practical ways. I'm just offering you one opportunity. But of course, I'm also saying by sitting on the cushion the way we did this morning, that's also a way to cultivate non-judgment, right? Because our mind settles. And then there's a little bit of a gap between the thought and then believing that thought. Have some of you had that experience? Yeah? So that's why shamatha is so precious um, in one way. But... um, so when we cultivate that non-judgment, I think it's a little bit of a better avenue to then start expressing itself in altruism. Altruism is very like, a, not a bit sexy, I think that's kind of the wrong word, but it's a little bit sexy in, in our culture because it, it looks good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It looks good to like, you know, be generous or do this thing. And I'm not saying it's not good. It is good, right? But um, it often can hijack our motivation and then... Sometimes, because, you know, I don't think any of you again, but, you know, me, like, we have a lot of wounding in our culture and, and, and uh, low self-worth. And so then we do everything to try to fill that hole, you know? And usually we're trying to fill it materially, right? Not just by buying something, but also by, like, getting some kind of acknowledgement for our work or acknowledgement from someone else. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that in a way. But again, what are we talking about? We're talking about, like, what binds us? So, does that bind you? I, you have to explore, you know? Um, yeah. So, my main point is I think it's a little better for us to work with non-judgment and then let the genuine altruism or value of other needs come out from there. Let it come out naturally. Of course, like, my teacher, Sognar he's got a wonderful story where he was driving through... Sorry, I skip around a lot. I, I'm sure you noticed. <laughs> I hope it's not too, like... Oh puzzle like that. I hope you're following. Um, anyways, um, Sokhna um he was in Delhi. I don't know if the story actually happened to him, but uh, he was in Delhi at like a nicer hotel in India. And uh, some of you have been to India? Yeah. When you stop at stoplights and, you know, go to places, often there's beggars, you know? Well, I think I was, I'm staying in Pacific Palisades. There's also some of the light there, too. <laughs> but in India, no, they're often like... <laughs> yeah, in Santa Monica. So often there's, uh, like, kids, you know, small kids. Yeah. And so th- he was at the light, and in the ho- they sent him, they sent him into the, in a nice car from the airport, you know, and the, the drivers put, like, water in there, like, bottled water. And um, there's a kid, you know, motioning. He, he, he was, saw the water through the window, and he's motioning, like, I want some water, you know? And so Sognum Shea was about to give it to him, and he was thinking, oh, like, he was, like, there was some aspect of trying to feel good from this act, like make himself feel good, like a hero, kind of. And, and he wasn't feeling so much altruism in that moment, meaning, like, again, I'm defining altruism in a limited way here, but this, this more valuing the need of the other. Of course, it's probably mixed. So then he, like, questioned. So then he asked, asked us, like, I'll ask you, so... Do as a practitioner, do we wait for the right motivation to give the water, or do we give the water? 
into the water, right? <laughs> it's obvious. But it, it, it's, it's so, so that story I like because we still obviously have to help and we have to try our best to do. And I think it can come from the other end too. You know, when we offer service to people, when we value them, when, again, for a Buddhist practitioner, it's more, we're, we're, it's more, fo- now, see, the Western culture, we don't like this so much. So it's a little bit of a, sometimes a shift to find the value in this. But we, in Buddha Dharma, we're often placing more emphasis on the state of mind, not the action. But the action is important, but the more emphasis on, is on the state of the mind. Why? Because then the motivation and development becomes very clean cut, you know, clean over time. And then when the action comes out, it's very helpful and very skillful. If you're like me, often uh, we have like wisdom separated from skillful means. So then, you know, I was in a retreat cabin in the Big Sur, California for three years, you know, over three years practicing and also fooling around and wasting time. <laughs> but ants would come in, you know? To the, yeah, it's a beautiful, yeah, it's, not, it's a beautiful place to waste time. <laughs> so the, the ants would come in, you know, every winter. And uh, I'd try to say, you know, take them out. And often, if I wasn't, care, you know, using wisdom to judge, like, okay, what can their body take? What amount of pressure or something? I'd kill them, you know? So this is often, I mean, an example in our lives. So this is why I think cultivating non-judgment can be a base for then letting the altruism come out naturally. But if someone needs water, we still give them water, right? right. So um, that's what I just, I wanted to stop, just to leave time for questions and maybe some discussion. But um, essentially, I think if, if you're able to bring that in and cultivate that, it's very extremely powerful. Because as you can see, we have a lot of black and white going on in our culture right now, you know? Mm-hmm. It's very black and white, and, 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 and then we're taught in that way, too. Now, again, I'm not criticizing anything. We need some ways to learn. There's good and bad with everything. But when that's happening, it's very difficult to get into this space of non-judgment, uh, dropping the judgment, but upping the discernment. So this is something where we have to train in it. Like, if you're like me, it's something I've ha- I'm continually having to train in. So that's what I'd advise, and I think that's a great way to be wakeful in life. It's very practical. Um, of course, some, a lot of you are meditators. Being mindful in your actions is also, but mindfulness in itself, there has to be a, a, a sort of, um, what's the word? Mindful of what? You know? And there has to be some kind of something after that a little bit. So mindful, it's great mindfulness is becoming so popular in America now. But um, again, if we just leave it at that, it can become a little bit like going to the gym. So I'm sorry if it's a little too direct. But also, I do think mindfulness in itself has a lot of qualities. I think when we're mindful, we're going to be more aware of what's going on in our, in our thoughts, in our body, of others' needs. But again, we, we have to take the mindfulness a step further. But the mindfulness offers us the opportunity to then engage, or the, the depth. So anyways, I think that's about all I want to say. The rest, if I just keep talking, it'll be like blah, blah, blah. So um, if you guys have any questions or sort of comments or complaints, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> when you say like, um, Sorry. mindfulness is like going to the gym, like, what is the comparison? Uh, oh, see, I, that's why I get myself into trouble. <laughs> um, I, I may, maybe I missed that part. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe you missed it. Um, 
No, not like going to the gym. It's like, um, it's all about like what we're seeking in a situation. So if we just want calmness and to feel good, that's fine. No problem. We need more of that, right? We're, we're, I'm stressed out. We're all like, you know, we have busy lives. So I'm stressed out too. I, you know, we all need calmness. But if it just remains there, it, it has limits. So then sometimes it's like um, when we go to the, what did I say earlier? It's when like we, breaking out your brain and your spirit. Yeah. Like where the gym is working out your body and your physique. And exactly, yeah. Where, where again, what's the, what's the motivation for doing it? So I, I, what I'm advocating here is as practitioners, we have to start upgrading our motivation a little bit. Not that you haven't, just sort of throwing that out there is, is um, upgrading it into this space of, of, of course, I'm saying non-judgment here, but um, actually I had a nice note. Let me see if I can pull it up mm-hmm. on this. But um, also I'm saying um, altruism and compassion, yeah? Um, there's something I wanted to say here. Mm. Oh, I didn't talk about the word bias but it's related to judgment. And what I wanted to say was meditation should lessen our bias. Mm-hmm. And if we're practicing mindfulness and shamatha, you know, calm abiding meditation, and it's not lessening our, our, our bias, then we have to take stock and look, why is that? You know, and check why is it not lessening it? Again, I'm saying it, it might be because we're treating it like a workout a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then we get off the cushion and that's it. Like just as we leave the gym, so it's like that. Mm-hmm. But when you leave the gym, like your endorphins are flowing, you feel yeah, good, definitely. you feel like totally. happy. And... No, and that's where mindfulness has a lot of benefits. Mm-hmm. So I, that's fine. So I, I want to be clear here. I'm advocating for, that's great. We need more. Like, like just as a workout can make someone who's like a rageaholic, a kind, you know, a more relaxed person, I think mindfulness can do the same thing. But at the end of the day, it has its limits. And, and then it'll just leave us with that. So it's all, our motivation determines the goal, the um, result we're gonna get right. from something. But that's fine. I think like calmness and less stress is great. Like there's, there's no problem with that. It's just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not, I believe it's like, there's more potential that can come from, from mindfulness. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So how do you go from just doing it like you're going to the gym to doing it the way that you're talking about? That's a good question. <laughs> How much time do we have left? Um, yeah, I think that's, that's an important key. And, and it's not something I could say like in two minutes because we have a whole path of Buddha Dharma where we, you know, again, it depends on your, your goals and like how, how much of the religion you want to incorporate. But I think let's just take the secular aspects of it now because I don't know how many of you are actual Buddhists. And so I just want to be fair or whatever. So, and... Um, just not talking in a religious way so much, I, it's all determined by motivation. Mm-hmm. So if our motivation is to sit down and we just want some stress relief or calmness, we will get that. Yeah. If our motivation is to gain more awareness of our inner experience and mind to work with, in the case of my talk today, non-judgment, we'll get that. You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> so it's all, Yeah, it's all about intention and motivation <coughs> and what we're bringing into it. But, like, okay, intention and motivation, then the other is skillful discernment versus judgment. Yeah. That's a hard one. Uh, I know. I'm with you, girl. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's, you know, I would say just do it. Like, just work with this... What, I gave like a very simple method of just questioning our judgments. If they're, that's a very simple way. 
like in a, in a gentle way with ourselves too, not judging ourselves either, then what will happen is as the judgment drops, the discernment will come up. So it'll happen naturally. I think it's a natural reflect. But the discernment, it's really tricky because in one way we're, we're bound where most of our discernment is judgment. But I think it, it refines. And so, okay, I got, a, I got a better way to say it. I just thought of it. Um, it's sort of like leaving, leaving an open question. I really like this phrase. So whatever the situation is, or, or if we're dealing, usually I, I do this when I'm working with a difficult emotion or a situation with someone, I leave open just, I don't know. It's sort of like an open question. I don't know how this is. I'm just going to experience it and feel it and see where it goes. If you have to make a snap, judge, uh, snap decision, that's different, obviously. But I think what we can train in is these things we don't have to make a snap decision in and just sort of work with dropping our opinion about something, dropping being fixed with it and just leave it open. Then out of that, um, we think on it, we reflect, we feel it, and some calmness comes. We're not like worked up about it either. Then the discernment can start to come with something, as opposed to the judgment. Does that make sense? It seems to me that judgment is, is more emotional. Discernment is more dispassionate. And I, mm. I mean, I hate to... I don't know, I'm just throwing this out there. Sure, to go for it, yeah. Sometimes it gets too easy to get brought up with judgment. You know, like I'm thinking about politics. Yeah. And discernment the has a certain clarity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know, I just wonder if if emotionality has anything to do with the distinction. I think so. Um, yeah, I think discernment is a little... <clears throat> discernment sometimes can be also way overly analytical. So we have yeah, to be well, careful of that. Yeah, that's the downside of yeah. not having the balance. I mean, I realized that before I said it clearly. It didn't sound yeah. like it's just rational. And I don't mean it that way, but there's something about how our emotions determine so much that gets off balance. No, I think you're right. I agree with you. Yeah, I think judgment has much more of like a, there's a charge behind it. Yes. But again, that's, a, sometimes we have to, again, I, I ran out of, I had a lot of practical things to tell you and I just forgot all of them. So they're coming out now. But, um, <laughs> but uh, another way is just sort of like, sometimes we just have to acknowledge our need. Because like you said, judgment is often connected to an emotion. So sometimes when we're having a strong reaction to something or a strong emotional response, it's because our need isn't being met in this situation, or someone's taking advantage, or manipulating, or whatever, you know? So then I think the first step is kind of acknowledging that as a, as a first step, and then when our, it doesn't mean our need will get met, it just means we're like not denying that need. Then, because it's emotional, then um, once there's some space again, we're a little less bound, and then the discernment can come up. Discernment actually comes from space. Yeah. It's too crowded. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Can I borrow that? <laughs> oh, there's one. Oh, you are, yes. Yeah. It's okay. Um, yeah. The word you used, the bind, felt so, um, you know, judgment is like, oh, judge. Um, but bind is so kind to see the, to see the way I'm formed in that thought. The bind, it's so gentle, so good. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think terminology is important. It, mm. Some words we're going to connect with, some we're not, mm. you know? And I think we also have to drop our judgment around that. But then we can also, 
find words that we connect with. Thanks. There's someone else? I think we're at the time, too. Yeah. 11.21 or so. I'm sorry, I didn't have time. You guys usually break into triads, right? Or dyads? Yeah. Maybe if I come again, I'd love to do that, because actually I, I really enjoy when people do that. Yeah. For me, we got to like, it seems like you guys have a really wonderful community here, and I really rejoice in that, you know, because um, what's so important is getting out of our individualism and our culture. And so we need community and to develop tribes together, you know. So I'm, I'm really rejoicing. So hopefully next time I can help foster that by doing triads and diets with you. We're trying to invite Tom's back for a half day. Yes. have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.